Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Muradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses with the latest on Russia's war on Ukraine, and Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners with a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. But first, joining us now is Mark Montgomery, a retired United States Navy Rear Admiral uh, and the current Executive Director of the Center on Cyber and Technology Innovation at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's also the Executive Director of the Cyber Solarium 2.0 Project. Mark, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Welcome aboard. Hey, thanks for having me, Vago. Uh, Always a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, And before we get started, today's program is brought to you by HII. HII is a trusted defense and technology partner supporting all services in all domains and America's only builder of nuclear-powered aircraft carriers, HII delivering hard stuff done right. Uh, Mark, uh, thanks again for uh, joining us. Uh, And consistently on this program, we've been discussing China's efforts to implant malware across U.S. military networks and across uh, the national security enterprise that can be activated in times of crisis uh, to slow things down. I remember uh, that being an important theme in the report uh, on cyber that Michael uh, Bayer and Ron Moultrie, who's now the uh, U.S. Uh, DI, the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, uh, wrote for then Navy Secretary Richard Spencer. I I commend everybody. That was one of the most insightful and thoughtful cyber reports that come out until you guys put out the Cyber Solarium uh, report. A few months ago, you joined us to discuss uh, that this malware had in fact been uh, detected. And now the New York Times is reporting that it appears to be bigger than we thought. And it's an accelerated push to address the problem. Walk us through where we are, what we know, and what is it we need to be doing right about now? Well, thanks, Fago, for bringing up this issue because it's important. Look, as we look at the ways to prepare uh, you know, for a, a potential conflict with China and, and the way to deter China from doing things, an important part of it is cyber resilience. Uh, you and I spoke about this about a month and a half ago after I testified at Congress uh, on this issue. And, and to me, this is one of the, you know, the top six or seven issues we have to uh, get our, our and the Taiwan military ready for. Very specifically, this is about cyber, the cyber resilience of our incredibly networked systems. And, and the first, uh, you know, the inner circle is military mobility. Your rail systems, your air systems, your highway systems, your uh, port systems, are they secure? Can you rapidly move uh, things through, uh, you know, equipment, spare parts, f- fuel and oil, you know, can you get them through and out? I mean, we have a prodigious logistics capability, but uh, a lot of it is reliant on, on uh, privately held infrastructure. As I said, the rail systems, the right. port system, the air networks in our country, all that. So first is that military mobility. The, the second part is our national critical infrastructure. In other words, electrical power grids, financial services, um, water systems, health, healthcare systems that allow us to have economic productivity, which produce our actual greatest power, our economic power to impose sanctions and stuff. And that also enables the military mobility. So you have to protect both those systems. I think it's widely understood that we're vulnerable in these systems. And now what you have in this report is a very you know comprehensive discussion of that the Chinese see this vulnerability and have begun to put malware in. Malware that's associated with destruction, not surveillance and espionage. And that's very uh, that's a very important point that uh, that Rob Joyce and George Barnes, the two NSA officials who are beginning to speak publicly about this, are making clear. 
This is about China doing operational preparation of the environment for a crisis or contingency with the United States. And believe me, Vago, I don't think this will be used on, on you know, once kinetic conflict starts, I think it will be used ahead of time as a signaling message to the United States that, hey, we have your networks tattooed. Uh, you, you really need to think you know, hard about whether you're going to come right. to Taiwan's defense. Um, well, if, if I go back to uh, what Michael and Ron uh, uh, did, Right, they were talking about the thousand little cuts. Right, that the Chinese will be too clever; they're not going to bring everything down. They're just going to do enough stuff to slow things down. Or, you know, it would be like, well, you know, was that really a cyber attack or not, or was it legitimate? I mean, uh, so what are the things that we need to be doing? The uh, Solarium Commission, and by legislation, we've been doing an enormous amount. Uh, to improve uh, not just defenses, but resiliency. And the wake of each one of these uh, breaches, we're learning things. Uh, so now we're, we're not having the kind of persistent dwelling threats that we had you know, 15 years ago where we spent eight months not being able to get rid of people. Um, what are the things we need to be doing right now? And what's the timeline and the urgency we need to be applying to this problem? Because again, like so many things, it's not new. But now it's sort of like, oh, my God, they're here and they're there. They must be everywhere. Yeah, of course they are. You know, well, you got it exactly right. I mean, there should be a sense of urgency. Um, and, and I, uh, to go back to the idea of a thousand cuts, I agree completely pre-conflict. That's how they'll do it. Once conflict starts, I think they'll get everything. Um, and, uh, and what do we need to do is we need to be tackling each of these sectors. You know, bring, make it, you know we organize by critical infrastructures. Of course, there's cross domain. No, there's a, you know, they, they interrelate with each other so that, you know, electrical, you know, water is reliant on electrical power. Electrical power is actually reliant on water, um, rail and everything is reliant and, and, and air and transport are all reliant on electrical power. So you have to fix each of these sectors. Um, and it's not a great story. I think we do very well in the defense industrial base and the, and the Department of Defense, which is to say, I think Fort Hood's going to have excellent redundant power when water. However, once you try to move tanks out of Fort Hood or equipment out of Fort Hood and start moving it to a, a air assembly, uh, air, you know, an airfield for movement, um, it's going to be a rough day, right? I mean, that's where the Chinese will get at you. So we have to work on each of these. Um, and it was a mixed bag, you know, during this last NDA cycle, the port security bill that uh, Representatives Jimenez and Gallagher were pushing, um, you know, did not get included in the NDAA because of the kind of crazy rules committee uh, that was pushed uh, um, on the majority side in the House, uh, you know, that kept a lot of non, uh, a lot of important national security issues that weren't majority DOD uh, out of the bill. So that really worries me. Um, we had one for uh, aviation assessments uh, that was kicked out of that. And then it was kicked out of the FAA, it's kicked out of the National Defense Authorization, then kicked out of the FAA uh, reauthorization, you know, this is this is risky. Congress needs to take action now, you know, to kind of direct these. The executive branch needs to be taking action now. Some of these things I'm talking about, the executive branch could do some of these on their own. Um, so I think, A, it's timely. We, we need to take action now. B, you know, this is one of those uncomfortable positions where it's national security, but it's not Department of Defense. Right. And we've got to be smart enough, you know, in both chambers and in the executive branch to be taking actions on behalf of national security that aren't anchored in the Department of Defense. And, uh, and yet you, you just don't see that that Vago is probably the slowest moving train, uh, you know, in the national security, uh, you know, stable. 
Um, we were making uh, progress on this. Uh, Angus King, obviously, and uh, Mike Gallagher were the co-chairs of the Solarium Commission. The, the amount of progress you made, I mean, if there's ever going to be a monument uh, in Congress, it should be for uh, the members and the team and you who drove that forward. You brought the National uh, Defense Authorization Act. Obviously, the House has made its moves. The Senate uh, passed its own uh, version, uh, far less partisan than the House one. Where do we need to end up on this? What are the elements of both of these that have to come together in conference? So there are some good things in both bills that need to happen. So things were left on the floor, like I said, cutting on the floor. We need to go reattack those in other bills. But for the NDA itself, there's a cotton in the economy uh, provision in the Senate version that needs to carry over into conference. There's um, Taiwan Cybersecurity uh, Resilience Act to, to work very directly with Taiwan on, uh, on, the, on their infrastructure. Um, there's, uh, there's, uh, things to improve, uh, the resilience in, uh, in cyber force in the NDAA, in the, in the cyber command and in the cyber mission force. So I think that there's, there's a few things in each bill that will be useful, but, you know, Vago, we're going to have to, you know, this is going to be the hardest thing in a, in a heavily, in a, in a partisan environment, we're going to have to add, you know, um, things onto like appropriations bills onto the back, maybe added in the NDAA on block at the end, you know, that address some of these other national security issues. Um, if there's any supplementals, we'll need to add things in there as well. Um, if we don't begin to attack this sector by sector, and, you know, a rail is one that's, you know, I know TSA is very worried about, it, and they're attacking it with just with existing rulemaking. But we're going to go ahead and do a, a study of that to see, are, are there actual congressional initiatives that are needed to support that? Um, you know, the executive branch is a little slow to ask for congressional help. Um, and then the Congress is slow once they need to take action outside the Department of Defense. You know, we're very fast inside the Department of Defense, uh, very much annually update everything, but not so much in the rest of the national security. Unfortunately for us, the Chinese don't discriminate, right? They're going to attack us at our weakest point. And our weakest point is the non-DOD national security areas. Um, the let me ask uh, one uh, last uh, question. Uh, the administration, at least based on the New York Times story and the earlier story, appears to be taking it very, very seriously at the White House level and sort of pushing everybody for, OK, what, what do we do in order to try to address this? Um, the administration also, by the way, uh, you, you and I were uh, texting that the president used uh, drawdown authority for the first time ever to get equipment uh, to uh, Taiwan. First. Are you pleased with the urgency the administration is giving on this, A, which is sort of more broadly on the issue of cyber, and then talk to us very briefly and, and, and why it should actually motivate everybody else, and then real quick, your sense on the importance of this Taiwan decision as well. Yeah, so I'll go through those in order. You know, I am, you know, obviously they leaked this, right, uh, you know, made the story, there's these comments, you know, at the same time from Barnes and Joyce, you know, National Security Agency leadership. This is absolutely the right thing to do. I think they're doing right to draw attention to this because we're going to need a whole of, you know, um, you know, um, inf you know, uh, society in the sense of business support from the businesses that, that underpin this infrastructure support. So I think the, the executive branch is doing the right thing, drawing attention to this. I kind of wish it had been like two months ago when we were arguing for some of these things in the NDAA, but I understand, you know, intelligence, you know, takes time to vet. Uh, but, you know, this is very good. Um, I do think that the National Cyber Director and the National Security Council and the former Ann Neuberger and uh, CISA, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure Security Agency, 
led by Jan Easterly. All three of those are doing a good job, you know, kind of, you know, trying to attack the sectors, but it's slow going. And, you know, they're having to break down a lot of, um, of, uh, of uh, you know, uh, silos between agencies and things. Um, finally, I, I, the presidential drawdown authority is fantastic. Um, it's, uh, it was an initiative Congress authorized last year. And um, I, you know, I don't think it's fully appropriated yet, but I, in the defense approach for this year, you can see the money start to show up. So I think uh, Secretary Austin, you know, using the president's approval of uh, presidential drawdown authority, uh, $750 million worth of equipment there is good. Um, I do think we'll use this a lot for training. I think you're going to start to see an increased level of training for their army and their reservists and other things, because that is something the United States is very good at. And uh, but it does cost money. And uh, so sometimes doing that with, with drawdown is uh, is useful. But but in any case, you know, providing support to Taiwan is uh, is very important. Mark, thanks very much. Keep up the great uh, work. Always appreciate having you on the program. Thanks very much and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Wagner. And a quick word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. HII sponsors our global coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And GE Aerospace sponsors our air and naval coverage. And as it's Monday, joining us is Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's also a fellow at the Center for a New American Security. He's part of the crack Russia team at CNA and one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, as well as uh, unmanned systems. Sam, uh, welcome back. Hope you had a great weekend and thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Fargo. Great to be back. Uh, it's always uh, a pleasure. Uh, Ukraine's offensive uh, and now looks like it is underway and appears to be making uh, some gains uh, pushing forward. Uh, certainly in the south, the Russians have launched uh, their own uh, offensive uh, in the north to try to pressure uh, Ukrainian uh, forces. Um, the former president and current deputy national security council chief Dmitry Medvedev uh, mused today at a Russian industrial association meeting that nuclear weapons might be needed if Kiev uh, is successful. Give us an update on uh, what we know on what's going on in the front, because the Ukrainians have been very guarded with information. Generally, it comes out of U.S. sources or Russian sources. What are you picking up on Telegram and other sources about how the offensive is going? Because it looks like they are making gains at this point. They are making gains indeed. And this is the uh, uh, that very difficult stage of attritional warfare where both sides are, are trying to gain advantage. Uh, again, we've discussed before that Russians have established a massive amount of fortifications along the front to slow down the Ukrainians. And on some parts of the front, that uh, set of fortifications seems to be successful and the Russian tactics seem to be successful. But on other parts of the front, Ukrainians are actually pushing Russians through. They're reaching uh, initial lines, uh, initial fortification lines, and they're trying to get beyond that. So there is concern from the Russians right now. There's a lot of bravado. Uh, there's a lot of basically um, uh, a lot of kind of calls for victory, which are rather premature at this point on Russian social media channels. But um, a lot of military correspondents, a lot of volunteers who cover the war on the Russian side are concerned and they're worried uh, that a Ukraine may actually achieve gains and successes. And of course, in this type of attritional warfare, losses are inevitable, including losses in equipment and personnel. And so Russians are trying to amplify every hit, every, uh, every tank, every vehicle destroyed as, a, uh, as something much bigger than 
But again, this is the type of attritional warfare that is very uh, grinding on both the um, offensive and the defensive positions. Normally, this type of warfare would favor the defenders, but Ukrainians have learned and Ukrainians are making gains and they're, um, they're being inventive on the battlefield and they're trying to negate the Russian advantage uh, and um, essentially uh, Russian forces digging in for the long haul. Uh, it's uh, really uh, amazing how the Ukrainians have been using the precision uh, weaponry uh, that uh, we've provided them, especially the storm shadow weapons, taking out command and control centers, taking out ammunition storage dumps, uh, really kind of paving the way for uh, the offensive to sort of take ammunition away, try to blind as much as possible. Do you think that that's paying, that's play, paying dividends uh, in, in this campaign so far? Absolutely. And logistics is a huge part of, of this war. So trying to damage, disrupt Russian logistics by uh, striking at their, again, as you have indicated, uh, either headquarters, command structures, uh, or any other nodes that supply uh, soldiers, material, weapons, and systems to the Russians has been um, advantageous. Uh, again, this is a very large front. And it's a relatively deep front. And so some parts of the front are going to be affected more than others. But yes, Ukrainian tactic is actually paying dividends. And, and before we move on, because there were so many uh, Russian nuclear threats, I mean, is, should we be taking this threat any more seriously than the other 150 nuclear threats they've made in the last year and a half? Well, any uh, time a Russian government official talks about nuclear weapons use, obviously gains world's attention. Unclear what message Medvedev was trying to communicate, considering uh, there's a lot of concern right now about the use of nuclear weapons around the world in general, considering how uh, this debate played out recently um, as well, uh, with uh, Russian political commentators sort of um, going back and forth about the necessity. And Medvedev is kind of the sounding board right now. He's almost sounding just like um, Zhirinovsky used to, kind of right. saying things that are outrageous or things that are really strange and weird uh, to act as a sounding board to see how much the dialogue and the narrative can be pushed in either direction. Um, let me ask you about the long-range uh, drone war. Obviously, the Russians are using long-range uh, systems. Some of them are Kinshals, but many of them are Shaheds. Uh, we saw a strike on uh, Odessa's uh, Mother uh, Cathedral, uh, that's the reproduction of the cathedral that was sadly torn down during the Soviet era, uh, and a point of pride for uh, uh, Ukrainians and Odessans. Um, you've got Kriv uh, Yuri, uh, 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 Zelensky's hometown was hit. You're seeing towns all over Ukraine being hit. And now increasingly the Ukrainians striking Moscow. Um, two drones getting through and hitting apartment buildings. Uh, and as Zelensky is saying, we're going to take the, Rush, the war to Russia's doorstep. You now have uh, Russia saying, well, we're going to divert air and missile defenses to better protect the capital. What's the psychological impact on Russians? Because from their standpoint, we're a thousand miles away from this. What the heck is going on? Is, is this having an impact, uh, do you think, on, on sort of the Russian psyche, where this war was sort of out of mind, you know, I may know guys who are serving in there, but, you know, it doesn't really affect every Russian family at this point. It probably depends on who you're talking to. Obviously, these attacks uh, have a, a damaging and lasting psychological impact. People now know that Moscow isn't safe 
as it probably was in their minds before the war. Other parts of Russia, Western parts of Russia are not safe as well. They're within reach of the Ukrainian drones. And as long as the Russian drones and missiles are going to rain on Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, there will be a Ukrainian response. But many Russians have adopted sort of this fatalistic attitude towards this war. And this attitude was discussed in several very interesting articles and surveys recently, uh, that even if they think this is a wrong war and that they should not be fighting it, they cannot lose it. And therefore, Russia must fight to the end or to the point where it can um, withdraw from this war in an advantageous position. So it really depends on the Russians. And um, we're kind of getting the sense that some people are basically starting to get used to these attacks. Uh, the attacks are multiplying. In fact, last week began with a strike on Moscow where a drone hit very close to the Ministry of Defense headquarters. And last week actually ended with a drone strike as well, this time at a symbol of Russia's newfound high-tech prosperity. I want to remind the listeners that the Moscow city district that was hit is a business district with modern skyscrapers and high-rises, and they look just like any other modern downtown in North America, Europe, Middle East, or Asia. A lot of government head, uh, headquarters and ministries were actually in that district. A lot of major companies, international, domestic, even the rich and famous people live there. And the fact that it was basically hit with relative ease uh, also indicates that uh, even some of the cultural landmarks are probably within reach as well. Again, want to remind the listeners that the Kremlin was hit earlier by drones as well. Right. So the question isn't necessarily whether Russians are very stressed or concerned. A lot of questions are to the Russian military. What's air defense doing? Why isn't air defense stopping all of these drones? Why is electronic warfare, as the government claims, instead of downing these drones safely somewhere, why are they veering off uh, their intended course and slamming into civilian buildings? And so a lot of uh, telegram-based commentators are actually um, hinting uh, ever so politely now that air defense and EW should be doing a better job. But this is a problem that we discussed before. It isn't possible to create an impenetrable dome over Moscow against any and every flying object, just like it's impossible to create such concrete level defenses in air defense and electronic warfare defense against other cities, locations, military bases, and other locales. Uh, exactly, uh, exactly so, right? Even as the Ukrainian defenders are doing a great job protecting uh, as much as they can, uh, weapons still get through. You may veer something off course, but it then plows into an apartment building, uh, for example. Let me ask you one uh, last uh, question, which is um, somebody who we've been discussing for a long time and clearly is a, sur a survivor, uh, Wagner CEO Yevgeny Prigozhin. Uh, he is back in circulation in grand fashion. Uh, he was at the meeting of African leaders, uh, albeit shorter than uh, smaller than it's been in years uh, past, hosted by uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, and it looks like he may in some cases have upstaged uh, his boss. Prigozhin got a lot of headlines as Wagner remains uh, critical to Russian efforts across Africa, including in the Central African Republic. Um, and uh, Prigozhin even lauded the new coup in Niger that was unfolding as this meeting was going on. What does all this tell us um, about Putin and his power? Because uh, everybody was saying, oh, you know, Prigozhin needs food tasters and the like. He was at the same conference with his boss, with African leaders, and actually may have been spending more time with African leaders than his boss. Well, it's interesting that Prigozhin looked like a guy who wandered into the long, uh, into the, excuse me, wrong conference. 
um, photographs taken had him looking very casual when compared to very uh, formal attire by everybody else at the, at that Africa summit. So I think that's an interesting detail as well. Did he know he was going to go there? Was he whisked to that summit from some jail cell somewhere looking the way he did? Was that also a message that um, Prigozhin is part of the system, but also can be outside of the system, meaning he can even flaunt some of the uh, diplomatic requirements and, and basically looking formal at a major international summit. I, but I just again, have to say, I call it Zelensky wear, okay? He has been mirroring and wearing the battle rattle, right? And that more casual uh, outfits now pretty consistently since the beginning of this war. So that's my uh, armchair uh, psychological analysis. He is you know, mirroring that we're, a fighting organization and we're in the fight and we're all dressed in that's my sense right and also the fact that he he actually showed up uh, after many weeks of rumors indicates that he's around he is needed he is necessary at this point and we often discuss how many allies does he have in the kremlin right who actually patronizes him what forces try to protect him and uh, the fact that he is still around, uh, physically unarmed and in good spirits, indicates that things may not be as bad as some people have anticipated right after his failed insurrection. It's not clear what role Russia will take right now in Africa as there's more upheaval. As you mentioned, there's a military coup. And of course, there's the continued presence in the Central African Republic and other locations. But Russians are going to be there they are staking their claim to some of uh, their positions, geopolitical positions in Africa, and Prigozhin is part of that. And so as long as Russia will need a force like Wagner, as long as it will need someone like Prigozhin to be in these dangerous locations, acquiring resources and gaining geopolitical influence, someone like him, someone like Prigozhin may be around. But, uh, you know, once again, you made a point about Zelensky. Zelensky wears battle gear, right? He, but Prigozhin looked very casual. And right. so that was kind of strange, too. I mean, someone like Prigozhin definitely knows what he has to look like for a major international summit where Russia is trying to uh, sort of reestablish its influence um, on the continent long um, dominated by European powers or by China or, or by other countries. So... He's still around. He's still alive. His forces uh, are in Belarus right now, training a Belarusian military. And his forces are also in Africa. So Wagner may be kind of scaled down to size. They may have slightly less influence. They may not have a lot of heavy weapons that they supposedly gave back to the Russian military, but they're still around. And uh, b before we go, I should make one clarification. The distance from Kiev to Moscow uh, is 469 miles or about 755 kilometers. Sam, always a pleasure uh, having you on the program. Thanks very much for joining us and already looking forward to having you back on again next week. Have a great week in the meantime. Thanks very much. You too, Wagner. Thank you. And as it's Monday, joining me now is my good friend, Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, for a look at the week ahead and whatever else is on his mind. Byron, thanks very much for joining us. Hope you guys had a terrific weekend. It was fantastic with the uh, cold front that came through, a little stormy, but what a terrific Sunday. It was a, a lovely weekend, although here, obviously, the storms were uh, pretty uh, pretty brutal and a lot of broken trees all over Washington, D.C., including one near our building where I guess uh, the wind, it looks like a chainsaw hit and took out the very top of the tree as wind came off the top of our building and took these 
gorgeous pine trees and took the top of them right, yeah. uh, sadly right off um so um we don't have unfortunately as much time as we would normally have we're going to have a little bit of a longer uh segment uh next week but let me uh start off um the great series of notes over the course of the week let's talk a little bit about earnings second corner earnings came out last week for a, a lot of the group you wrote it's important to bear all of this in mind and keep it in context give us give us your sense on what the most important takeaways were well, I actually thought, Baga, you know, it was interesting because <clears throat> one interesting dichotomy with the group was if you looked at DOD investment outlay projections, uh, you know, up 9% this fiscal year, up 15% next fiscal year. And yet, if you went back to the April earnings calls, a lot of these managements and the large companies were guiding the flat organic sales. There were some exceptions in the defense uh, space segments, but it was a pretty, uh, you know, uninspiring picture. And then you saw these results come out and lo and behold, you know, the sales estimates did move up and the sales comps were actually pretty good. Um, but it wasn't enough to really keep the market happy. And I think the, the concerns that I, I think a lot of people felt were operating margins were not increasing at the same time, but I don't know why people would have expected this, um, given the mix issues, given the inflation pressures um, <clears throat> that companies are seeing. And, and I actually think, you know, a lot of the contractors are doing just fine with their operating margins. There are some exceptions, of course, but, um, you know, generally, generally the, the reports were pretty good uh, when all was said and done. But, you know, you saw these one, two, three percent, four percent declines <clears throat> on the day that results came out. Um, you know, there are a slew of companies reporting this week. Uh, I don't know if I want to change an expectation for the same sort of <clears throat> response, but it's going to kind of be interesting, you know, later in the year and as people start thinking more about 2024, where consensus expectations are, where the outlay numbers are, you know, is there another reset coming? Uh, and so your projection would be actually we're going into more positive territory, especially if the economy remains as strong uh, as it is and the threat profile remains where it is. Despite yeah, the budget, with, with, the, with the one big caveat that you then have, you know, the, the problem, I suppose, is <clears throat> consensus estimates for 2025 and beyond might be too high if, you know, defense outlays really are going to start to flatline. And that's what you got out of the Fiscal Responsibility Act. Um, you know, I, personally, that's probably the base case uh, to think through. Um, we still have to get through FY24 appropriations. You know, that that can be a, a quite a saga. Um, just the way, particularly in particular, the, the way the house kind of left things <clears throat> before they broke for recess. So um, there, there is still a lot of ground to cover, but you know the underlying, the underlying element of twenty twenty four should be okay. But the market is going to discount in the future, and that you know beyond twenty twenty four, it's not just what Congress does with defense spending; it's also going to depend on the presidential election. And arguably, there's still some pretty significant variables there too. Rest of the world you know, didn't seem to be showing the same kind of response. Um, uh, Saab, you know, Saab Group in particular, uh, up their organic sales growth expectations and, uh, you know, from kind of 15% to 16 to 20%. So um, outside the United States, you know, the, these European defense companies, I think in particular, are showing some pretty good numbers. 
There was one uh, event that jumped out at you, which was a nuclear, uh, tactical nuclear discussion the Jamestown uh, Institute uh, sponsored with a retired uh, U.S. Army Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, who commanded the U.S. Army uh, in uh, Europe, uh, talking about tactical nukes. Uh, as uh, you know, we talked about that a little bit earlier. Dmitry Medvedev's comments, uh, you know, that if Ukraine is successful in its uh, counteroffensive, Russia would have no choice but to use nuclear weapons. They've been saber rattling for a while, but this was somewhat more of a nuanced event. What what were the takeaways from your standpoint and why was it so interesting? Well, I think just the simple title of it, demystifying Russia's tactical nuclear weapons, I think, you know, kind of the framing references where people are, you know, scared witless out of these things, you know, and they, they, they kind of see the representations in movies, for example, uh, you know, Terminator 2 is one, one that came up about a nuclear blast. And, you know, what was discussed was, well, actually, you know, Russia has some very low tactical nuclear weapons, you know, like 0.2 kiloton yields. Um, second point, their military utility is really very limited. Um, they're good against mass troop formations, and that's just not the way this war is being fought right now. Um, and the third point is, you know, if troops are trained and organized, the fallout from these weapons, uh, depending on where they're detonated and, and what the yield is and what the quantity is, you know, the U.S., other NATO armies practice and, and exercise uh, with the notion that tactical nuclear weapons could be used in a confrontation with Warsaw Pact during the Cold War. So I think the point was, um, you know, if we're deterred by this, we shouldn't necessarily be deterred. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with that entirely, because I think if there's a, a nuclear use by Russia, you know, there's no NATO policy yet on what that response will be. Um, there, there are clearly some escalatory breaks that would be horrific uh, if we crossed, uh, we crossed them. But just, just the simple threat of a Russian nuclear event in and of itself shouldn't deter um, the U.S. and Europe from doing more to help Ukraine. And I'd say the other point that I think was interesting was the fear about uh, nuclear power plant meltdowns, you know, the the statement was made by one of the discussants at the event that, come on, this is not um, this is not Chernobyl. Chernobyl had 190 tons of uranium. About 30 percent of that was expelled. You know, if you look at the critical mass in a in a nuclear or plutonium weapon, you know, you're talking about elements that are the size of a, a softball or a volleyball. It's just it's quantitatively different and the, the nuclear power plants that Ukraine does have, you're just not going to see the same type of, of uh, calamity that um, that Chernobyl and maybe even Fukushima right. experienced. So it, it was pretty sobering and I think well worth, uh, I think the, the event is up on YouTube. Um, if people have the time, I definitely, I definitely recommend it to people. Uh, and we've got about 30 seconds left. Walk us through what should the uh, the audience be paying attention to this week? It's starting to slow down a bit. I mean, still a lot of earnings are going to be reported this week. Um, there is a Royal United Services Institute event on instability in Russia. And though it's not ne necessarily directly relevant to defense, there are some interesting read throughs, which is there is an AUVSI slash FAA event on drones and advanced air mobility. 
you know, kind of the regulations <laughs> and usage around those items. And as we've seen, you know, they really have been very important in the war in Ukraine. And I think the advanced general mobility uh, concepts, you know, may yet have some impact on how DOD is thinking about logistics. Byron, thanks very much. Uh, hope you have a great week and already looking forward to having you back on the program next week. Thanks so much. Thank you, Vago.